Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. So in the most disconcerting and unfamiliar of years... The Grand Slam season has ended with the most familiar and predictable sight in all of tennis. Rafael Nadal lifting aloft the Coupe de Mousquetaire on the Philippe Chatrier court. His 13th Roland Garros title, his record equaling 20th Grand Slam title overall. And of course, the way he did it, the nature of the final was anything but predictable. But uh, I've got David and Matt right here, ready and raring to go to discuss, digest, reflect on all of that um, in just a few moments. But I hope you'll allow me just a moment of indulgence first, because this is our last daily podcast of 2020. I hope you've enjoyed all these 15 daily French Open pods. Hope you've enjoyed all of our daily and weekly pods so far this year. It's 125 and counting, which is fairly ridiculous. That is 25% more matches than Rafael Nadal has won at Roland Garros. Um, I'm not saying all of this because it's the end. We've got plenty more pods to come. Um, and David now has a full week off to start having ideas in the middle of the night. Um, I'm saying this because in about six weeks time, we'll be launching our Kickstarter campaign to crowdfund the podcast for 2021. We'll launch it on December the 1st um, and continuing the podcast and continuing it to the standard we've achieved this year, predictions aside, um, is something that's very, very important to us. If we could do it without asking for money, we would. We love the podcast and the three of us are completely devoted to it, but it does co cost money, even when we're not traveling. Um, I'm sure all of you would agree that it is inconceivable um, to think of this podcast without Matt. I can't quite believe David and I ever did it for all those years without Matt, frankly. He's completely invaluable. And of course, Matt comes with the odd caravan. 
uh, also essential. And then there's the fumigators to get rid of uh, the insects that he finds in his... <laughs> in his bedroom in the middle of the night. So none of that comes cheap. We've got editors, a completely devoted, amazing team of editors, in particular Patrick, who's done these past couple of weeks at the French Open. Hello, Patrick. Thank you for everything. We've got our designer, Gorana, who does just incredible work across all of our merchandise. She works on the newsletter. We've got Sarah, our fixer and sort of does everything, anything we can think of. Sarah says, oh, I can help with that. It's a whole team of people um, and they all make a contribution and it's hard to imagine doing it um, without them. I know it's a tough time financially for a lot of people out there. We're really conscious of that. And if you're not able to contribute this year, we we really do understand. But if you can support the podcast, we hope you do um, because we want to continue this thing. Um, we want to do more. We want to deliver more. We want to do even more bad predictions. Um, and if you'll allow me just one final bit of indulgence, I'm going to read out um, just a couple of lines from a an email we received from Steve, Cam's, Cam's dad, uh, today. We actually received it uh, just a few games before the end of the, the men's final. And it, it distracted me to the extent that I couldn't quite pay attention uh, to the final couple of games. I'm hoping David and Matt uh, got a grasp on how the match ended. But here's a, a couple of lines from from, from this wonderful email from Steve. He said, sharing Cam with all of you has been such a privilege. I'm sure everyone feels their dog would be beloved if only other people knew him or her. Joe and I have always felt that about Cam and now we've actually gotten to experience it. The love and support from the tennis podcast audience, the comments on YouTube and on Twitter have been a, such a boost to our spirits. Knowing that if we lost him, and we nearly did, Cam would have so many new friends mourning his passing was like some kind of magic, some miracle anti-sadness pill. But of course, it's not magic. It's good old-fashioned humanity, and it's reflective of the warmth and friendship we hear every time we listen to the tennis podcast. Um, I'm not just reading that to to big us up. <laughs> um, I'm reading it because... It kind of reflects, I think, how we feel about the podcast. It's certainly how I feel about the podcast, um, about David and Matt and about the whole podcast community. It is a miracle anti-sadness pill and a cloak of warmth and friendship and purpose uh, in what has been a very cold year. So we'll be launching the Kickstarter on December the 1st um, and I hope you can support us if you can. Uh, David, Matt. Oh, we've... dear. I'm not sure I can talk <laughs> <Gosh>. at the moment. <laughs> can you imagine how Rafael Nadal feels about now? Yeah, uh, just just as well. I mean, wonderfully well said. And what a beautiful letter that was that Steve sent. I mean, it, it did uh, choke us all a little bit. David to had to go on the radio afterwards. I did. I had to pretend <laughs> that I hadn't read it. Um, but um, anyway, uh, what we do is, uh, as Catherine says, we launch this thing on the 1st of December and we've got um, an email list that we send one email a year out to on December the 1st just to let everybody know it's live. And the uh, the link to that's in the show notes if you if you want to be on it. Should we talk about tennis? <laughs> Should we talk yeah. about this final? I'm, put I'm putting off having to actually sum up the achievement of Rafael Nadal winning 13 French Opens and winning this French Open in particular and doing it in the way that he did because <laughs> it's so astonishing. I'm struggling to process, frankly. 
Yes, apologies in advance for hyperbole and use of superlatives, <laughs> but if you can't use them now, when Rafa Nadal is now 102 at Roland Garros and has won his 13th title, when when can you use them? It is utterly extraordinary what, what he's achieved today. And of course, this is an achievement that is actually 15, 16 years in the making. It is it is unbelievable what Nadal is able to do, both in tennis, number one, but also just at this tournament. One of his best ever career performances, David, today? Uh, I would say so. This was up there with what he did to Federer in 2008 when Federer won a handful of games. Arguably even better, I think, because Federer struggled that day. I think that the conditions were less suited to him today on paper, at least, I would have thought, compared to a high-bouncing hot day in June. And, of course, he's you know he's 12 years older. I mean, let's not forget he's 34. That's That shouldn't be put to, to one side because, you know, he's got a lot of miles in those legs, a lot of kilometers. And... It's it's just mind-boggling that he can physically do it for a start. I think it, it, it bore a lot of similarities to what Djokovic did to him in the Australian Open final of 20 months ago, which uh, which Djokovic referenced, in, or sorry, Nadal referenced in his post-match mm. comments. Uh, it had that same feel in as much as when we were discussing this yesterday and we were building up to it all week long, the one eventuality I could not see is one of these destroying the other one. That I just could not see. I mean, which is, again, just another example of how good at predictions I am. Um, but it was a performance that I wasn't expecting of that level. And that that feels unfair to Rafael Nadal after what he's done over the last 12 years. But he lifted himself to a level we certainly haven't seen at this tournament. Mm. And it, this, this fortnight, anyway. You know. it, it, wasn't, it wasn't just... Fortunate that Nadal woke up and happened to be having a brilliant day today. Is it wasn't just oh one of those things. The way the cookie crumbles, he changed things in his approach today. He was, and I believe the stats ended up bearing this out in terms of uh, Naomi Brady was quoting it um, on your coverage, David, about the the net clearance on his backhand being significantly lower today than in previous matches, indicating how much more aggressive. He was being on that. I mean, I think on both wings, but in particular on that on that backhand side, he was firmly the aggressor out there, and 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 Djokovic was on the back foot right from the word go, and he looked bewildered by the level throughout. Imagine imagine playing really good tennis and being the world number one and having lost a set six love. I just can't, I can't imagine how awful that feels. You know, I texted you guys at the end of that first set and I said, other than serving a bit better, I I don't know what he can do. I don't think it's a question of, oh, just raise your level a bit and that'll be okay. What can he possibly do? Yeah, and he's been in his press conference, Djokovic, and used the word surprised by Nadal's level. I don't think he saw this coming from Nadal based on what we've seen from Nadal these two weeks. Yes, Nadal's been great. He's got to the final without dropping a set, but he's clearly not been absolutely top, top level Nadal. And I, I'm not sure Djokovic was expecting the performance that we saw from Nadal today. He was caught a bit off guard, surprised, bewildered. 
And that that is so much credit, as you said, to what Nadal was doing. He was the aggressor. He was taking every opportunity to hit his forehand down the line and standing up on the baseline and kind of taking the drop shot away from Djokovic. Well, I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but just little subtle changes in his game that he made that just made this huge overall difference. And with the intent that he played with, it was it was overwhelming for Novak Djokovic. And um, I was kind of reminded of a little quote I read from Tony Nadal recently, who after the Schwartzman team match said, a lot of people compare team to my nephew, but I don't think that's a fair comparison. This was in Spanish. This was in the Spanish newspaper El País. And he was saying that team is a great player, but he doesn't have the options in his game that Nadal has and the different ways to be able to beat you. And I think this goes back to what we were talking about on a podcast recently where, David, you said the fact that these players are always adding things to their game, Nadal, Djokovic and Federer. And Nadal has got so many different ways he can beat you. He can change up what he does. And he did that today. And I think it surprised Djokovic. And it shouldn't be surprising to me but it, but, and to us, but it kind of was surprising to see Nadal change tactically against Djokovic. That, that rivalry has been so familiar in my head of what that looks like in terms of the patterns of the rallies. And this one was different out there. Nadal's, Nadal's tactical awareness today was, was as good as anything I've ever seen from him, I think. I remember a moment, it was in the second set because you were commentating, David. Uh, I think towards the end of the second set, it felt like it was quite deep into the match and Nadal served volleyed for the first time. Yeah. And Leon Smith remarked upon it. And, and at that point, it felt like, oh, he, he can do that as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he hadn't even needed to use, use that trick. But, well, when, you know, when just I, reminding you, here it is. When I got onto the commentary set that I was doing, which was set number two, I was trying to work out what, what's happening because as whilst, yes, the ball was zipping back and forth and hitting winners for Nadal, he'd also got a very clearly defined tactic that I also thought he used against Schwartzman of hitting his own backhand down the line with loop and topspin very deep onto the, the Djokovic backhand. And, and I don't think I, I expected to see that at all. I, I, I just I just wasn't expecting that shot. You know, we've we've always seen the, the cross court forehand from him do that. But this was I mean he was almost hitting lobs but viciously powerfully and top spun. And Djokovic was trying to half volley them the way only he can, but they were proving too much even for him. But when I got onto my set that I was doing that's when I noticed that court positioning. It was like watching Nadal at times on a hard court. The way he was, he was, it was almost like saying, right, now I'm going to get onto the, I've, I've returned it, now I'm getting on the baseline and you're going to have it. You know, he was crowding the court. It was, and I thought, when we talk about how these players are developing tactics all the time as they're getting older and ways to beat each other, look at the way Federer developed that, that, that backhand whip against Nadal to turn that rivalry around. Here, everybody, writers, us, everybody is talking about how the drop shot is going to be the new tactic against Nadal by Djokovic. And that, you know, you remarked on uh, earlier in the day, Catherine, about how it was like Djokovic had spent the whole tournament preparing himself for this moment to play against Nadal, who's going to have his back against the fence and he's going to be burning him with drop shots. And I was fully expecting that that would be 
the tactic that we were talking about today in a positive sense for Novak Djokovic. It's, it felt like, I don't know this for sure, but it felt like Nadal knew that was coming and said, okay, right, I know you're going to do that. I'm going to be on the baseline and I will, be, I will diffuse those drop shots because that's what he did for the whole match. I mean, Nadal's got wonderful hands for a start. When, when he's rushing forwards, playing those little dink rallies, I don't think there's anybody better than him at that. And the moment you get the ball up in the air against him, he's probably got the most powerful overhead backhand you know, backhand smash. And he's also got the skyhook forehand smash so that he can rush back and hit it powerfully way further back in the court than anybody else can, even though he's not the tallest. So he just completely diffused Djokovic's strategy with his own strategy. And I, oh, I really enjoy watching that. I must say, I wasn't ever convinced that a drop shot was going to be a great tactic against Nadal. I know he's not got a brilliant record against Nadal at Roland Garros. And so I think it's to his credit that he was thinking of ways that he could maybe change the pattern of that match. But he has got a good record in the rivalry generally against Nadal. And he's very comfortable in the rallies normally. He's the one dictating and he can manhandle Nadal when he's playing well, even on a clay court. And I just think if I was Nadal... As soon as Djokovic plays four drop shots in the very first game of the match, I thought that was an immediate boost for Nadal because I'm, I'm thinking, well, it almost feels a bit of a panic already as though he can't live with me in the rallies. So he's having to res- revert to this drop shot. And because Nadal is so fast and, he's, and because he's got those amazing hands that you, said, that you referenced, David, Djokovic was having to play absolutely perfect drop shots and it meant that he was missing quite a lot of them into the net. It was a real problem for him today, whether to use the drop shot or not. I think his success rate through the tournament was about 80% with the drop shots, and it dropped to less than 50% today against Nadal. A huge, huge switch in its effectiveness. And as much as Nadal contributed to that with his tactical positioning and changing where he was in the court, I was surprised Djokovic didn't abandon it more quickly than he did. He seemed to abandon it in that third set, and that was when the rallies started resembling the ones I'm a bit more used to. But by that point, Nadal's lead was so great, and Djokovic wasn't quite playing his best. He was making more unforced errors than we're used to seeing from him, and kind of felt like the match had pretty much gone at that point with Nadal playing so well. And yeah, it was it was fascinating tactically from, from both sides of the net, therefore. He was desperate in that third set wasn't it wasn't it I mean I think he was desperate by the second set really and actually yes there was a period when that desperation kind of manifested itself in him just hitting out and it coincided with Nadal nearing the finish line and obviously getting a bit tight giving what given what was on the line and it did feel for a moment like oh they're all that there, there, there could well be a full set here I'm sure David you were you were stretching and lunging and limbering up for a fourth set of commentary um but he was it was it was kind of the, the flailing um movements of of utter utter desperation at, at what to do in the face of this total onslaught today mm. um and I, I know i know the unforced errors did start mounting in the third set but it felt to me like when is an unforced error not an unforced mm. error i'm not sure he hit any unforced errors today because nadal forced all of them 
we and we had the stats on the Dow's unforced errors that I think until six love five one, Nadal had hit three unforced errors in basically two sets, and then he had a flurry of them right at the end of the second set. I I, I think I remarked to you both that that I think he's just slightly losing his timing a little bit. And I wonder whether he was just getting a little nervous, to be honest, uh, closing in on the second set. He he was sort of grunting and leaving the ball a bit shorter and things like that. And he just wasn't quite as convincing. I think there was a double fault in there. Um, he lost his second game of the match. I mean, he, at the end of the second set, his, his game, Djokovic doubled his game tally. I mean, <laughs> to get to two. Um, and then when they went into the third set, it was... It was parity, really, throughout most of that. There was an early break for Nadal. When Djokovic hit back and unleashed that roar, I did think we were going to get a long match at that point because Djokovic, he just he just let it go. He, he started to really let his arm go, and he was starting to hurt Nadal at times, um, which was which was fantastic. That was when the, the, the match was just boiling, and and... At that moment, I did think of the Medvedev final against uh, at the US Open last year because Nadal wasn't quite as good in that as he was here, but he was comfortably in charge of that final against Medvedev and he was a break-up in that as well. And then it just became that nerve-wracking epic. And, well, he just didn't allow that today. I mean, I don't know. Uh, one, one of the absolute greatest performances of his life. Yeah, uh, I... I completely agree i i'm i'm slightly distracted david <laughs> by it, the fact that it now looks like you're sort of featuring in, in a scene from the blair witch project yeah it's 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 great in the studio i mean i'm in the bbc studio at the moment and we do go from uh day into night uh whilst we're commentating we've got the screens in front of us and we've got this massive expanse of the of the key and and the uh the horizon with a lovely sunset at the moment but we started this podcast in the light and we're 20 minutes in and it's already dark um so yeah we it's it feels like you're commentating in a cinema when we do the night sessions which is quite a good laugh but i but hang on but i can see but there's a curtain that's what yeah okay that's i'm opening it i'm opening it it's a bit hard to do when you're doing a podcast <laughs> right there you go daylight somewhat somewhat less I, spooky i don't understand how it's changed to the dark yes, okay. if it's still light outside what changed in the room for that to happen we've only been recording 20 minutes david that, that's called lens exposure i think matt i think i just need to face the light it suddenly got very eerie very quickly though <laughs> about two and a half minutes ago <laughs> it's gonna get worse okay that's, that's okay. what happened um right we'll, we'll prepare ourselves for that something that we haven't talked about yet is that this final was under the roof and I mean, as soon as I saw that it was going to be a, an indoor final, I thought that that tipped the balance more in favour of Novak Djokovic, which I think just makes the performance that Nadal put in even more remarkable. As the match went on, I started, obviously, because what we were witnessing was Nadal dominating, I started to think about whether actually the conditions were favouring Nadal. And I certainly think had it been outdoors the balls might have got damp and heavy and those conditions definitely would have favored Djokovic and I was reminded of how good Nadal was indoors in Madrid at the Davis Cup finals last year which to my mind is still one of his greatest feats what he did that was hard court wasn't it It was a hard court yeah and you then you then put a clay court underneath and obviously it just makes him even better but there is this obviously narrative around Nadal that he's not great 
indoors. I think he's only ever won one title indoors. But I think a lot of that is because it comes at the end of the season and he's normally knackered. And here he was fresh and his shots were having so much impact. And I think because the court was generally slow, because it's a clay court, Novak Djokovic taking the ball early didn't seem to be having that much effect because he wasn't rushing Nadal in the way that he that he sometimes does. And yeah, I think Djokovic thought the conditions would suit him as well. That's another thing he said in his press conference, just maybe another reason why he was surprised and caught off guard at the start of the match. I think he thought things were going to be in his favour and very quickly, well, not that quickly, but pretty quickly found himself a double breakdown. And he never he never properly settled. There was... Two or three games, as you've mentioned, in that third set. But I never really saw the Novak Djokovic I expected to see. And I don't know, to zoom out a little bit, that's three Grand Slam finals now in a row where I don't think Djokovic has played close to his best. He's won two of them, the Wimbledon final against Federer and the, and the team Australian Open final this year. But he was, he was very match aware in those finals and he won them by being better in the big moments. But... I don't know, ever since that 2019 Australian Open final that we've referenced, he's slightly struggled to find his best tennis in Grand Slam finals, I think. And this was probably Mm. the most most obvious one of the lot. Mm, uh, He's already uh, been into press, hasn't he? And uh, he, Matt, you caught the end of that press conference. He came in very quickly um, and it sounds like it, it was just all about Nadal, he was just kind of deflecting all questions about himself onto the brilliance of Nadal today, which is completely valid. Um, but yeah, he's, he's, I don't think he's doing, doesn't sound like he's doing much introspection about what he could have done differently. Mm. And that's, that's more the side of things I fall onto to really. I, I think, I think it does end up looking like a bad performance when you're faced with an opponent playing like that because you you've got to try stuff you've got you've got to start hitting the panic button and doing things that are outside of your comfort zone and and that can lead to sort of some quite troubling looking sort of unforced error statistics and so on there was one giveaway moment in his own speech though when he was again fulsome in his praise for Nadal but he also said wasn't my best performance he said and you could see the frustration in him at that point and and I found that really interesting because having watched it, yes, I mean, look, his first serve percentage in that first set was appalling, really. It was about 30%. And you just can't do that at, the, at this level. He raised that very quickly in the second set and he, he got it up. But, you know, he, he's putting himself on the back foot by not... Because usually his first serve is... And his serving generally these days is so difficult to attack... And and he he was making himself a little more attackable by not making that first serve, but um, but I think that that told you that, and I think it's something with these guys they're that good they think they should be able to do something about this even even when their opponent is playing that well and um, and I think he, it will frustrate him even even though he knows Nadal was amazing. Mm. Matt said, uh, I think it was actually at Four Love in the first set, but it felt like it had been an extraordinarily competitive Four Love. I think um, I think all of those games had gone to juice or, or at least 30. Um, you said, I'm, I'm watching this, cutting the, the next gen that we're not calling the next gen anymore, quite a bit of slack because you watch something like this and you realise... 
well, of course they haven't broken through. How could anyone break through into this realm? It's a realm of of gods. They're still so much better. I mean, you just you watch those first that first set, and I think particularly the first set. I mean, the highest quality six love set you will ever see both sides of the net, the angles they were coming up with, the ferocity with which they were hitting the ball, the accuracy, the the way their movements are synced up with the way they hit the ball and the patterns of play. It just took my breath away. And I think there's such a there's such a frustration which I so often feel when the next gen that aren't the next gen anymore can't quite break through. And I think it's maybe natural to feel that frustration. But when you do watch these guys play at this level. Yeah, as I said, it just makes you realise that it's probable that they will never reach this level because this is a level that men's tennis has never really seen before and might not ever see again. So the required level to win Grand Slam tournaments will probably dip. I mean, we saw that in the US Open final. It was an entertaining, dramatic match, but quality-wise... It was a world away from what we saw from Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal today. And that's okay, you know, that's fine. But I think it's also just worth mentioning again and again just just how good these guys are. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there are, if we go back in history, there are people that have produced this sort of level, Rod Laver in their own way, Pete Sampras, but they haven't done it over this length Mm. of period to accumulate this number of titles and the thing is the main thing is they're just not getting worse because all of our established understandings of how tennis careers go had these guys becoming much lesser forces when they're in the late 20s and uh and I mean, look, you know, I think I'd, I did my first, I wonder how ro- much l- longer Roger Federer's got left 13 years ago and he's still intending to play next season. And, you know, so, but that's because everything we'd established over the years of what happens when Pete Sampras got to such and such age, he retires. And these just these guys are just not getting worse. That's, that's what I can't understand. And it's because of their tactical developments, I, I find them probably more interesting than ever. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live and you can watch on your phone or your smart TV, both in HD. Matt, this sounds like your kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tie break or even the latest bit of aggro. And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Longlen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with legends of the game up against the new generation of young players. I cannot wait. Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. We've barely even mentioned the fact that Rafael Nadal is now the joint all-time Grand Slam men's record holder on 20 tied with Roger Federer. If you think back to when when Roger Federer tied Pete Sampras's record and what of uh, 14 and how completely momentous that was and how that was the one and only storyline that day. I mean, I know it's different because they're both active players. Um but this is completely momentous. Yeah, um but, and, and if, uh, He's playing it down, though, isn't he? That's the other thing with Nadal. <laughs> well, it's he's always Nadal. been he's always been the one of the three that's been least obsessed by those numbers. That doesn't mean he doesn't care about them. Of course, he does, but he's the least fixated on them. If there were if there were anybody questioning our um, assumption that Roger Federer was would have been supporting Nadal today, here is a tweet by Roger Federer, which came out so soon after Nadal's victory that I wonder at what stage this was composed, whether On it was in, whether it was in, in notes. Mid- for it was. 12 no, hours if, before. if you look at it, it's clearly in notes. And it, well, and he's, yeah, but so... Uh, but I, he's been penning it halfway through the final <laughs> before, you're right. He said, I have always had the utmost respect for my friend Rafa as a person and as a champion. As my greatest rival over many years, I believe we have pushed each other to become better players. Therefore, it is a true honour for me to congratulate him on his 20th Grand Slam victory. It is especially amazing that he has now won Roland Garros an incredible 13 times, which is one of the greatest achievements in sport. I also congratulate his team because nobody can do this alone. I hope 20 is just another step on the continuing journey for both of us. I bet you do, Rog. Well done, Rafa. You deserve it. Aww. It's it's really quite something, isn't it? Um, I mean, I, I think it's I do think it's it's lovely how they are about each other, it, given what they're competing for, uh, and uh, and I do look at them a little bit like that London Marathon scene I saw many many years ago when I was a kid of two two runners who just crossed the line hand in hand together um, deliberately because they didn't want to, either of them to win. And I know that these guys do want to beat each other. I know they do. They want they want to be the one. But equally, those two, I I 
genuinely believe that when all is said and done, they'll be they'll be content either way. Well, that's like Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. Chris Everett said, "I'm I'm glad we finished on eighteen slams each," and it kind of feels like maybe Federer and Nadal maybe not as close as Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova are in term, in, as a as a friendship or as people, but. In in tennis terms, it does kind of feel like they've been so bonded together that it feels right now that they're both on the same. I, it's it's very likely that in May June next year, Rafael Nadal will win another French Open and have the same number of French Opens as Pete Sampras had Grand Slam titles. <laughs> oh my word! <laughs> he could win two in a year. I'd not thought of it like that. Um, yeah, for Federer, like it's all very well and fun now that you're in the same gang, but it it could feel really different when Nadal gets his uh, his new new little gang of one being the all time <laughs> leader. I do. I, I seeing that message and kind of the whole reaction um, to, to to Nadal's win and equaling that record. I do it does make me feel a bit for Novak Djokovic because even on the day that was supposed to be about Djokovic and Nadal, their 56th meeting in the most prolific rivalry in men's tennis, it still ended up being about Nadal and Federer. Mm. He was still the third wheel, even on a day when Federer wasn't blooming playing. And, and Federer didn't mention him in the notes, which I, I no. must admit, I did, I did look down that and I, went, I thought, oh, no, can't see that. <laughs> Um, wonder maybe that's just an oversight, but uh, you know, I thought he might have done um, just to say unlucky. But there we are. Um, I mean, look, I don't think that that'll stop Novak Djokovic from adding to his total for a minute. I think he is coming for more, and he will get more. Um, but but I I found I really enjoyed listening to Nadal after the match, and he was talking about he he wouldn't have this talk of 20 he wanted to concentrate on winning Roland Garros not for a 13th time just winning it winning it outright holding that trophy it i mean I, I that's why he's so great is because he thinks like that he's mm-hmm. his mind is not going to places other than this right here right now and that's what accumulates all these titles for him aside along with obviously his incredible physicality and his skill um but it goes back to something I read in preparation for the final today when I got Matt to read out the name of a Spanish newspaper several times for me because I didn't know how to pronounce it and I wanted to see if I could get it right. Let me have a go. Uh, it was La Voz de Galicia. Nailed it. Is that David. right, Matt? Excellent. Right. Now, in this newspaper, uh, back in May, Nadal had said, it doesn't obsess me nor is it a great goal for me. I am only concerned about my own career in life. I'm not worried if the one who lives next to me has a bigger house than mine, has a better car, or earns more per month than I do. If they do, they're doing all right. Uh, He added, one has to be satisfied with what one does. And this is what I have done throughout my career, and I'm very satisfied for that. Even if Federer or Djokovic finishes with more Grand Slams than me, it won't affect my happiness 10 years from now. And it will be really ironic if he ends up with the most, won't it? If given he's the one that wants it the least. <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, I think I think he does want it, but I just think he's 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 motivated by it the least. Yeah, yeah. I, that end goal is not 
what's making him play. He loves competition and he wants to wring out whatever drop of ability he has to compete at the highest level out of his system. I think Federer has that in his own way as well. Um, I think he enjoys tennis in a different way to how Nadal enjoys it. But, I mean, that's I, I loved reading that. I, even though they, they, some, sometimes they may not make for the greatest soundbite in the world to be talking about the bigger picture, he won't have that. But in his own way there, he's given me some insight that I don't have or that, that wouldn't it wouldn't just tripping off the tongue any old soundbite wouldn't give me. It's really something to listen to. And I also think Nadal, all throughout this pandemic, has had a real perspective on tennis's place, sports place, kind of in the world at the moment. And I think you kind of saw that in his reaction at the end. It wasn't a typical Nadal wins Roland Garros reaction. We did, For example, we didn't see him on the clay with his racket flung miles away, like we've seen... I think 12 times before, pretty much every time he's won it, he's done the same thing. Yes, he, he slightly fell to his knees. And yes, he obviously got teared up when the national anthem was playing. But he also said, in a way, it's a bit sad. Yeah. Well, after his first round mm. match, he said, the feeling is more sad than usual. Maybe that's what it needs to feel mm. like. It needs to be sad. Many people in the world are suffering. Mm. Yeah. And I, I just think he's he's been able to meet the moment in that sense and and keep it in perspective and yes it obviously means a huge amount to him to win Roland Garros for another time and and to equal the Grand Slam record that Federer has got and all these things but Nadal also knows that there are more important things and I think that I think that really does help him and it's just really it's just really showed in everything he's said and the way he's acted this this whole tournament I think. Mm. Is this his greatest Roland Garros? The fact that it was in October, the roof was on, the balls were changed. He did not have the ideal preparation whatsoever. It, it made me think of the, the stone soup story that my dad always used to tell me when I was a kid. Both of you were giving me blank faces. You know the stone soup story? Go on. I don't. I think it's an it's an allegory but, or but something I'm ready like to be that. enlightened. Oh, <laughs> it's not that exciting. But it's a, a woman is uh, no a a, um, a a homeless man shows up. I'm sure it's told in sort of oldie worldy language, sort of something, some sort of more uh, mystical term for a homeless man. But anyway, a homeless man sh- shows up on uh, an old lady's doorstep and says, "I will I'll make you dinner." Um, if you give me board for the night and um, uh, uh, she says, okay, he says, yeah, I can make this lovely soup just from this stone, just from this stone here, the most delicious soup you'll ever taste. And uh, he goes over to the stove and he puts the stone in the pan with a load of water and goes, "Mm, yeah, it's going to be delicious. Just needs a little bit of salt. And she says, oh yeah, I've got some salt. And and then he goes, mm, yeah, lovely, but it just needs a few carrots. And she, and she, you know, tosses in some carrots for him. She says, mm, yeah, great. Just just needs a bit of celery and some chicken and some stock and, you know, all the rest of it. And then uh, he serves up the soup and she says, wow, I just can't believe how delicious stone soup is. It's just how can you make soup so delicious from some stone? And, uh, yeah, it felt like, okay, it's Rafa winning at Roland Garros. 
but how many of those ingredients are actually the Roland Garros ingredients that usually make Rafael Nadal so great? It feels feels like all of them were taken away pretty much apart from the concrete of the Philippe Chatrier Stadium and the clay beneath his feet. Everything else was turned on its head and he still won the thing without dropping a set, without even facing a set point. Now, now I've—I don't think the stone soup analogy works at all, does it? Have I just bored people with the weirdest story ever? No, see, see, I, 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 I like it because, in the end, he's so good that he can, even though all those bits have been taken away, he still pulls it off. <laughs> yeah, although the the stone soup story is actually about things being put in. Thanks, thanks, David, for trying to help me there. Anyway, I hope, hope you all enjoyed the story and have learned something. <laughs> Matt, you were saying? <laughs> I guess I've always thought of Nadal and Roland Garros as as a kind of marriage of the, the perfect player for the perfect conditions. And this edition has shown me that actually maybe it's just the perfect player. And it's all it's all from Nadal because you can as you said, you can change the month, you can change the balls, you can change the temperature, you can put a roof on it. Nadal still wins. He's still the guy. I still don't think he's been beaten at that venue when he's been fit. I think in 2015, he was well below his best the whole year and Djokovic crushed him. And in 2009, Söderling played a brilliant match, but Rafa Nadal was clearly not right. He had knee trouble and he pulled out of Wimbledon just a month later. When he plays his best, he wins. And yes, there is something about the venue. I think the court helps him. The way he can stand so far back is it is an advantage that, that he has on that court that he maybe doesn't have on other clay courts. And the five sets help him for sure. But basically, it's just because he is so great and so extraordinary. And I, I cannot think of an achievement in tennis or really in sport that I'm sure there are some but for me it's it's the greatest tennis achievement Nadal's Nadal's continued dominance at Roland Garros I mean Chris Clary I think tweeted you know this this is a record that will last for eternity it is it is that good yeah I'm wary of I'm wary of the hyperbole of Mm. this is one of if not the greatest achievement in sport however however it's 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 rare it's rare with sporting achievements that you feel comfortable saying definitively this will never be matched because you're just opening yourself up to looking a fool at some stage in the future because sport is all about the unexpected and the astounding and and you know never say never but i i i think pretty much all commentators mary said it the other day forecasting his win today, that 13 Roland Garrises will never be matched. It just won't be. 13 and counting, P.S., will never be matched. So that has to put it in the conversation for greatest sporting achievement for me. My, the, the only way I could suggest that it might be caught is that if the trajectory of player careers continues lengthening and players end up being out of play just because of sports science way way longer and somebody comes along with nadal like talent that's that's the only thing i can think of but i think we could be waiting 
way, way past our lifetimes anyway for, for that. Uh, and by the way, I've been th- I, th- I still think we can make this stone soup thing work. All we need to do is have, me. have the vegetables and stuff and the stock and all that taken out and it still be yeah. just as good, Catherine, don't we? If we do yeah, that... It's, it's literally I, the opposite of the stone, stone of soup everything story. everything you said. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's, it's the opposite. <laughs> but it still works now. But, you know, we can still use it. We just need to turn it completely on its head. Yeah. So, yeah. cool. What I said, but, you know... Look, it's only us three. Nobody else is listening. Yeah, this is what you'll be paying for your money for in December, folks. <laughs> Top quick, quick analysis. T- t- like tell this. the Northern Lights story quickly. <laughs> I guess. I guess. Wow. Just what I would want to say on the dial, and I agree. I, I, I've got caught in the trap of getting swept up with hyperbole. I, I, I warned you that could happen, but I do. No, think- I was. I was pushing the hyperbole along <laughs> what i think is that there are no there are absolutely no asterisks at all related to it because it's come in the era that we're defining as the greatest in men's tennis and it's a it's an individual achievement this is all been done by nadal and i think that's what makes it so incredible you can look at dynasties of teams and but that's a that's involved several other players but this is just a singular individual achievement over a lengthy period of time. It, it sort of ticks all the boxes. So what now for the Grand Slam race? What are you looking <laughs> at me for? <laughs> um, I can't take my eyes off you, David, because it now looks like you're broadcasting really from a cupboard. <laughs> I am in the dark. I mean, it does, it does look like a horror movie. You're right, actually. It does look like the Blair Witch Project. You're right. Yeah. Um, so... Oh, well, look, I, I would make Djokovic the favourite for the Australian Open because Djokovic wins the Australian Open. That's just that's just what happens. Uh, he, he's not far off as dominant there as Nadal is on the, uh, the French. Um, there's no, there's absolutely no certainty about any of these things other than Nadal's going to win the French Open as long as he's fit, most likely. Um, who's the, who's the favourite right now to finish with the most? I would probably say Nadal. Yeah, I think so, because I think he's a very strong favourite to get to 21, and that requires Djokovic winning five more to overtake him. And that's that's possible, but it's it's a big it's ask. A lot. It's a lot of slams. Yeah. You're assuming yeah, that he doesn't get injured, which he may not, but he may. And looking at it in, in the terms that you put it yesterday, Matt, looking at it in terms of time... Um, Djokovic is is 33 currently, right? I mean, five slams is kind of, even if he remains dominant, most likely three seasons worth of slam winning, isn't it? Okay, he could have a season of winning three. It's not unthinkable still. But let's say he wins two a year for the next couple of years. He still has to continue doing that into 2023, Mm. um, assuming that Nadal wins next year's French Open. At, at minimum. So, yeah, I'd say Nadal. And, of course, Nadal's got the Olympic gold as well. We don't need to worry about tie breaks until the 2020, <laughs> <laughs> etc. <laughs> well, do, do you think there will be a no? Probably because I would love it if there were just for a moment in time all three of them on the same. 
That that would be amazing. But it's it feels unlikely, doesn't it? Because because Nadal probably when will reach twenty one next year. Ugh. What if Federer Federer did a twenty seventeen and won the Australian? Nadal wins the French, then they're both on twenty one. Djokovic wins the next two. Djokovic wins the next two. So he's on nineteen. And then he wins the Australian Open to get to oh. twenty. But then we're back at Roland Garros again. Mind you, <laughs> mind you, the order of slams is um yes, it's no longer to be now. taken for granted, yeah. Yes, Wimbledon could announce that it's happening in, in January. <laughs> Um, yes, let's not let's not uh, make any more predictions for what on earth will be happening in 2021. Apart yeah, I've, from I've, I've the fact that 12. I'm determined to make that uh, road trip happen, that's all oh, I yeah. want to predict. Oh, we're doing that, yeah, one day. Yeah, I mean, I, I've yeah. got about three out of 28 predictions right this fortnight. <laughs> yes, none of us got any points today, did we? But we we know who the winners were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the gra- I'm pushing for the graph to be published. By the way, well, folks, because it's a yes, I'm now really pushing good... for that as well because I'm because I'm <laughs> I'm now also in the positive. What's on the, yes. What else is on the agenda? <laughs> um, I don't think anything because that's the end of the tournament, David. There's nothing to look ahead to other than a bleak black abyss, <laughs> much like your backdrop at the moment. Yeah, there I mean, we, 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 do you we, not have lights, worry, folks, David, we, at the BBC. We... <laughs> this is what I'm confused yeah, by. No. We, we do, but I didn't think I needed them at the start of the podcast and midway I couldn't really stop and go over and turn them on. So, you know, and now I'm quite into this sort of look. Okay. Yeah. Your teeth look gleaming white because you're smiling so much. They're really jumping out of the darkness. Yes, it's well, like Ross and friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's nothing to look ahead to. There will still be more weekly podcasts, don't worry. There's obviously the ATP finals um, in November at the O2, events building up to that as well. There's a couple of more events on the WTA Tour, unfortunately, um, only Estrava and Lintz scheduled at the moment. So we'll we'll be covering all of the remaining tennis. We're going to be having planning meetings in in a week or two's time. Uh, We're going to be doing our live show on Zoom. That's going to be uh, new uncharted territory for us all. Who knows, Matt and I might plan another quiz. Uh, so, yeah, there's still more tennis podcasting to come. But in terms of the Matt. French Open, <laughs> yeah. Live shows on Zoom making me very anxious. I think it will be less nerve-wracking, Matt, yeah. than I think so. Easy. Yeah. I suppose I could just mute um, myself, couldn't I, or, or sort of claim technological woes if it's all going badly. Yeah, that's David's go-to. Um, but in terms of the French Open, there's only one result we haven't talked about. That is Tamir Babosh and Kristina Mladenovic, the second seeds, uh, winning the women's doubles title 6-4-7-5 over Garachi and Kravchik. Imagine that felt really good for them because, of course, um, they were withdrawn from the US Open where they were the top seeds yeah. um, due to Christina Medenovic's, um quarantine situation. Yeah. So um, she's, I mean, and to be fair, Medenovic, I mean, I know she caused some of her own issues uh, or made a lot of a lot of noise around that time. But she went through a pretty tricky time um, being in quarantine and and then obviously she had that first round in the singles here where she was 5-1 up and there was the double bounce and she suddenly it went running away from her. She's a heck of a doubles player. I mean, those two, what a partnership they've mm. turned into. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. The sure are. So that's it for the 2020 French Open. That's it for Grand Slam tennis this year. We'll find something something to relive at some stage soon. Uh, don't you worry. And um, yeah, the Australian Open is is going ahead. They're creating these very fun sounding quarantine bubbles for tennis players that sound like sort of theme parks. Um, not available to journalists. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, but we'll be covering it. Don't you worry. We'll be doing daily podcasts on the Australian Open. Uh, I presume Matt will be in a caravan. <laughs> um, but that's it for Grand Slams in 2020. Every, how's, how do we feel about that? Literal doom and gloom for David. <laughs> well, yes, I, I mean, I am now in the pitch black. I can't see, I can, can't see anything. Um, but anyway. <laughs> we can't see you, David. Kind of, it kind of sums everything up, really, for the year, doesn't it? Um, and yet we're still talking even from the gloom. That's the tennis podcast for you. Um, yeah, five five Grand Slams worth of podcasts we've done in a year when we only had how many? Three? Uh, so so yes. uh, I enjoyed that element. 125 pods and counting. Our all-time record is uh, 130 Mm. which was last year. So we're going to beat that comfortably yeah. in a pandemic year. Thanks, could, David. Could, could I just make a mention of Andy Lapthorne as well, just before yes, we, we finish? You can. Um, yes. Because after his defeat in the, the quad singles yesterday to Dylan Olcott, um, he revealed that he was going to take a break from tennis because of mental health issues. Uh, there's a story on the BBC Sport website um, which quotes him as saying, it'll be his last match for a while. Uh, he said, if I'm honest, it was really difficult to get out of bed this morning and to put myself in the position I did today, going onto a court under high pressure live on TV against probably the best player that's ever played in our division was was really tough. I've probably been in a bit of denial as to what it actually is and what it was. Um, so we, I just want to wish him the very best and, mm. you know, to take his time and, um, and to get well soon. Um, and, yeah, thinking of him. Absolutely. Yep, well said. And the same goes for Cam and Steve and Joe. You have been so wonderfully supportive of the podcast. Cam has been an absolutely immense and joyful addition to our coverage over the last couple of weeks. That email you sent us today, Steve, it means the world to us. And uh, I'm so glad that Cam has been able to enjoy the French Open 2020 so thank you thank you david and matt thank you for everyone that's sent us lovely notes they really do mean a lot to us and we will um we'll try and respond to all of them because uh, we read all of them and uh yeah they all mean a great deal and we'll be back in a week can't wait i'm pumped <laughs> <laughs> david law in a permanent state of pumped <laughs> thanks for listening Tell your friends, leave us an iTunes review, um, request a reminder about our Kickstarter if you want to. It starts on December the 1st and we will be coming to you soon in a week's time, in fact, with our next tennis podcast. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.